0: Will. Sophie.
1: Will, what podcast are people listening to?
0: They're listening to The Neuromantics. I'm quite glad I remembered the word neuromantics there because I was teaching on Friday. So I just start with an anecdote. Teaching on Friday, and I was trying—I was talking about echolocation and voice, you know, which we might justifiably be interested in. And um, I was trying to remember the scene in Oedipus uh, where he's had his eyes put out, and almost the first thing he says is, "I cannot see my voice." It's an interesting line. Can't see my voice. Very theatrical, because the theatre is the place where things are shown, and. I couldn't remember the word Oedipus. So I said, Can anyone help me out? I I can't remember. It begins with O. It's not Odysseus. It's not Orestes. It's not Oliver. (laughs) Who is it? Sphinx, eyes, you know, sleeps Mm. with his mum. Disaster.
1: Sorry, point was handed down. No, it's, it's actually it's very interesting because there's a there's a very kind of niche area of the speech production research field which specifically studies this thing called it, they call it tip of the tongue syndrome. But when people know the word that they're looking for and they know a lot about the word, like you knew what its letter it's ended with, Dang. and they know what it's not. And you just can't get the damn thing. And it's a very interesting and very, very rare insight into how we represent meaning and how we slot that meaning in when we're putting together something that we're trying to say. So it's quite late in that process that it all sort of coalesces around a sequence of things that you then start saying. But you don't know when you put it into the frame, as it were, that you don't know it yeah, yeah or, or that you can't at that second put your hand on it. It's a fascinating, fascinating insight.
0: That is very interesting because a semiotician would say that actually what you've got there is um, you've got all the reference, all the things that refer back to the main sign, but you've missed the sign or the sign has dropped <laughs> off the register. You know, it's like lo- it's like remembering a lot about a book, but you can't lay your hands on it.
1: Exactly, and you and it's the. It's the realisation of what will become the physical form that is what you can't quite get to. Yeah. You can get to loads of other stuff. You know everything about the story. You know a lot about elements of what the sound should be, but not quite what it is.
0: Well, there we are. You see, listeners, I think that's your sort of free 10% <laughs> at the front of the... Um... <laughs> <laughs> should we wrap up now? No. Otherwise completely <laughs> produced the podcast. <laughs> This month, and uh, you know, it's um, it's a different story. And the story is social bonds and groups and um, living in groups and connectedness. Mm. And we've got a paper about social status and survival in baboons um, by Fernanda A. Campos, Francisco Villabencienzo Got that wrong, I think. Um, et al. And we've got a chapter from a novel by M. John Harrison um, called Climbers. Um, Shall we start with the scientific paper?
1: Well, I chose this because I thought it was a very, very interesting paper. It's relatively new. It just came out at the end of the summer. And it's part of this very, I think, quite lengthy body of research that's been looking into naturally living groups of baboons in um, I think sub-Saharan Africa and what they do is they study these sort of free-range baboons they're not baboons in zoos but they do things like they put trackers on them so they can actually get quite a lot of information about where the baboons are and crucially which baboons hang out which with with which other baboons so you know where the baboons have gone and what they've gone up to and I just going to very briefly describe so baboon uh, cultures, I'm going to say baboons so often, it's going to start to sound odd to me, The baboons live in groups. <laughs> so they're they're primates like us. And, and all primates, I think I'm correct in this, all pri- primates are social animals. And they live in social groups, like a distinct group, a troop of baboons. And they have a very, very structured nature to that group. So it's not just like a loose coalition. There is a pretty tight social structure, as there is for humans. But theirs is different from ours. So their troop of baboons will be centred around an alpha male and the alpha male will have become the alpha male by deposing a previous alpha male. So you compete your way into that role. And then all the other adult baboons in that group will be female. And then there are juveniles and infants. And actually the infants are very, very important. So for example, the alpha male will spend quite a lot of time looking after and hanging out with babies. And females will trade time with their babies to get things like, uh, you know, groom me or, you know, to go off and do something else that they'll actually, it's actually a a positive thing. The baboons are very kind of focused on each other's infants. And within this community, as they get older, the females stay part of that troop and they actually inherit the social status of their mums. And the boys, when they get to a certain age, move on and they might join another group they might then become the alpha male of that group or they are sort of without a group so you've got these adult males they they call them sometimes rather dramatically rogue males but they're not affiliated to a troop and this means that they are they live a slightly different life and they tend to be um they don't always live as long as the animals that live as part of a troop, except their they're, they're shot at getting into a troop is to become an alpha male. And if they manage that, then of course, they will have a very different life. But the really interesting thing is that if you look at the, the structure and the way that these networks are maintained, how do you know where you are in the troop? How do you know your social status? All of this membership of the troop and social status within that is managed by grooming, and I think we may have talked about this before on the podcast, but grooming is very, it's the sort of the currency for social interaction for most primates that aren't humans and, and, and particularly for the baboons. They spend a lot of time grooming each other. Who grooms you, who you get to groom determines where you are in the social network. And how much of a social network that you have and the closeness of that is associated with how long you live which is interesting because that's true for humans as well. Having a social network and having close bonds within that really matters to humans. But very interestingly, the thing that really seems to make a difference for the rogue males, the unaffiliated males, is having contact with females who are in a troop. And so if they have a female friend, and it's a platonic friendship, it's not a sexual Mm. interaction, it's associated with them living longer. And it seems to be that the mechanism for this is actually the grooming. And it's not just because the grooming gets rid of ticks and parasites, although apparently the, and this is what the paper's about, the rogue males look visibly dirtier than the, if they don't get groomed because they're not getting, they're not getting tidied up. Yeah. Um, because interestingly, the males won't groom each
0: other. That's the fra- I think that's just totally fascinating they hang out but they're not part of the socio-economic exchange
1: it's fascinating and then and the thing that seems to be really make a difference about the grooming is that it feels nice it is good it is relaxing it's pleasant it's a positive thing in your life so I think that, that I'd love to know more about these rogue males because they clearly have social interactions but they're not in the nature that are associated with the same kinds of benefits
0: yeah, I, it's it's a completely fascinating paper. And at one level, it just makes an awful lot of sense. Just at a, a purely practical level, I, because there's this extraordinary statistic, something like getting on for 40% of the males in the study are, I think, out migrants, as they're termed. So they, they, um, they're in at the start of the study, and then they leave. And they leave for a number of reasons. They leave because uh, they just go. They go off. They disappear, and we don't quite know what's happened to them. Um, but I think it's also suggested that there's competition, and there's yeah a kind of sort of not just deposition at the top, but deposition with the, within the other elements of the hierarchy. And so my practical question is, and the paper does address this, but with, but with quite a lot of technical terminology that I didn't understand. How do you get meaningful conclusions? Out of a group in which there is, as it were, forty percent wastage.
1: Mm. No, I, I think it's a it's a it's a very good question, and effectively, you sort of know what you don't know. Um, there was a really lovely picture that accompanied the press for this paper, which is a group of male baboons all sitting there, and one of them's got this huge, great big neck thing on looks huge because baboons aren't that big and this this big neck thing is is the tracker so right. they've caught some of them they put these trackers on them and then they see where they go and who they you know the trackers have got close to each other but the trackers don't work if the baboons leave you know that they've gone and that's it you don't know anything else and it's a sort of I find it sort of fascinating. It's a bit like you've travelled to another planet and you've got a limited amount of information. You, know, you are the Mars rover sitting there and you're trying to find stuff out. But you've got this very, actually, very narrow view on a phenomenally complex system. Like There's sort of the shifting nature of that troop and the affiliations within that and the, the role of juveniles growing up and leaving and other males coming in. You know, you can only begin to imagine how complex that is, that you even start to work out what it means from looking at it, because that's all we've got. We don't, you know, if they have communication with each other, we can't understand it, you know, so we're guessing. It's...
0: I mean, the exciting thing about a paper like this, of course, is that you do feel, although it's taken place over a long period of time, this is research that's taken place over, I think it starts in the mid-80s, doesn't yep. it? So it's a very, it's a really long 35-year project, really. Mm. Um, is that right? I think that's about Yeah, no, right. I think it's yeah. something
1: like that. It's extraordinary.
0: But at the same time, although it's long-lived, we, you, you really do feel that we're at the beginning of some kind of research trajectory here. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the significance of grooming and how we characterise grooming, whether it's enough to say it's, it's a sort of currency, which is, you know, to use your word, which I think is a good one, or whether it's something else as well, because uh, <laughs> the thing that it made me think of was there's no there's no male-on-male grooming, but sure, a lot of male-on-male competitive interaction which we don't see as care or grooming, but which, if you think of its equivalent in human primates, and I'm thinking you may be appalled to hear of Top Gear or Formula One or competitive sports, is really a kind of highly socialised and often very physical interaction. And it doesn't look like caregiving, but maybe it is in some way.
1: I think that's a very good point and I think um, you know, we're very comfortable with the idea that science is not a pure objective thing it was always massive amounts of subjectivity and it took us a very long time to admit what we were seeing with grooming was actually wasn't just a oh well you know I'm here and I'm, I'm getting I'm, I'm hungry and I'm eating your nits or something there was this whole structure to it <laughs> and that it was beneficial and interesting and had interesting analogies with humans but that
0: Look, I've got this dry patch on my enormous ass.
1: Can you? Yeah, can you just sit this can out, you scratch please? it? I can't yeah. get there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, but it's the same as you, as you, exactly as you say that if you have some sort of competitive relationship and it's an intensely competitive relationship, perhaps it still matters because it's the relationship. And I think it's that I matter in this context element that seems to be one of the things that's really beneficial and positive about grooming. It's, it's nice it, having something, you know, someone else's complete attention focused on you while they do this thing for you. is It's a marvellous thing. It's a lovely thing. And it's very recognisable to humans, but it's not the only way that you could be the object of someone's attention. And either way, if you're the object of someone's attention in a way that's something other than outright violence, it's a positive, you know, have elements of something that could be really meaningful. And at least it's letting you know that you're part of that system. You've been seen. You're not nothing.
0: Yeah, you're worth yeah, competing
1: yeah. with you you matter in some way.
0: It, it's very true. And you do see that in a lot of human sport and and you you know, you see it in play, I think, in primate groups, which in which the, the borders and the boundaries between play and competitive friction and containable conflict are quite fluid. Mm. And moving between those categories constantly, they're always shifting. Got into, I, I thought it was a great paper. I've got two other, two other questions, Professor Scott. I wondered if I may <laughs> <laughs> tax you with them. So both females and males in these baboon groups, it looks as if, if they interact with and groom with, either groom or are groomed by a female, particularly an older female... It looks as if that has some kind of beneficial consequence for lifespan, or, or, or that activity with older females, with females in general, and particularly older females. this seems to do... It, it, well, there's a physiological effect, really interestingly. What mm-hmm. it does is lower cortisol levels. Um, glucocorticoids, which I'm presuming is some kind of yeah. way of talking about cortisol. So the the stress hormone um in blood levels is 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 markedly reduced um after grooming. And over a, and I I suspect over a period of time it goes down too. It'll it'll spike when you're not being groomed, but then gradually it decreases. When you think of it in human terms, if you have If you're under a lot of stress and you have high cortisol levels, there's not a switch you can flick to make them go down. What you have to do is develop a habit, a practice, to lower the levels um, periodically, and then that, that has a beneficial consequence. But what's interesting about this is that it slightly does something to the definition of dominance, doesn't it? Because here we are on the one hand saying that males who don't have this kind of grooming interaction, though they may be dominant, um, may not live as long, partly because of the stressors involved in becoming the dominant male, and various other stressors to do competition with other males. But really, in terms of efficacy and lifespan, the dominant baboon in this environment is not male. The dominant male is female if you if you sort of flip your terms mm. it's as logical to say you're looking at a matriarchy as a patriarchy
1: i think that's true and i think um again the the this area of animal research tends to be the one that's really heavily freighted with a great deal of people's preconceptions and i think you know, we're dealing with almost a Victorian situation of assuming, well, there'll be a male in charge somewhere. And then you look at a troop of baboons and see there's only one male and say, well, he's clearly important. There's only one of him. He's in charge. You know, yeah. but as you say, the, I think it's fascinating that the social power for the females is simply inherited by their daughters. And that's extraordinary absolutely extraordinary and remains therefore pretty static if you are born into a lower status female then that will be your, your role you will stay with that troop and always be a lower status female if you're if you're a female it's
0: quite extraordinary so, so it is in fact a, so in fact it's a caste system isn't
1: it it very nearly is it's a sex-based caste system and that means that the continuous high status individuals as you say are female and their actions matter more their actions are what influence then the outcomes for the other mm. baboons. So it's um, it's important not to run away too much with the implications for humans because lots of things yeah. about humans are organised differently. Lots of things about humans. I think the thing that is very interesting and that we just keep dropping through the floor whenever we take human behaviour seriously is the completely critical nature of those social interactions and the fact that it will have, it has something like an on average two year effect on the lifespan of the animals. It's a huge effect. And it's the same for humans. If you are deprived of social networks, which is basically what we mean when we talk about loneliness, it's one of the most damaging things for your health that you can do without Mm. anything else necessarily needing to go wrong. Because it's not what your brain and what we've evolved to do in the loosest sense. And I'm not saying there couldn't be lots of other things of value in your life as a result of that, but you are more at risk because the simple removal of these strong social bonds, which, as we've seen here, are are as much as important that they're platonic and friendly as anything to do with family or a a sexual romantic bond. It's quite extraordinary. I'd say it's another area where science kind of starts to drop things badly is we've really failed, I think, so far to get over the importance of this in a society, you know, we're into another lockdown where these things just keep getting worse for people, but there's been a sort of an increasing factionalization in elements of Western society that lead to greater loneliness. And we just kind of go, well, that's a thing, without saying no, that if it was something else causing it, we'd get really concerned. So we probably mm-hmm. shouldn't be more concerned.
0: Well, it's one of the ironies of... of- um, large urban conurbations and has been for you know since the sort of post-industrial beginnings of the post-industrial area that very large concentrations of people of people also leave increasingly cellular lives and uh, I mean it'd be interesting to find the sort of precise anthropological study that could look at that mm. and 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 find uh, equivalents perhaps in sort of peak populations in other and other primates um, and maybe, maybe it happens there too I don't know There is a caveat at the end of this excellent paper uh, about social bonds and lifespan, which is that, of course, it's also important to realise that you may be, in those animals studied, even in a group of sort of over 500 baboons, it may be the case in a few cases that the longevity has more to do with just the extreme healthiness of the individual down the social bond they do say this mm. in the end and and i think that's important just to flag that up That so that in other words if you male or female if you happen to be a particularly fine specimen of um uh, a sub-saharan baboon then you know you may well do do well anyway
1: yes these things aren't entirely separable but i think it's um you know the the direction of causality. I mean, is, yes. is not necessarily yeah. easily teased out. I think it's interesting, and I think your point about the sluggishness of cortisol responses and the benefits of things that reduce cortisol not working immediately. Do you mean that the things, whatever it is that you need to do with, you know, if, if there's a mechanism for reducing cortisol levels, and here for the baboons, it's grooming. One of that one of the things is grooming that you have this very interesting kind of. Um, Necessity for it to be continuous or at least regular and also to be something that might be enjoyable in the moment, but that's actually not where the payoff comes. You know, the payoff. And of course, that's absolutely true for us as well. Things that reduce our cortisol do not do so quickly, and things that elevate our cortisol tend to get up and stay up unless you do something to reduce yeah. it.
0: I just wanted to kind of bring a, a literary connection to the business of exclusion from social bonds and exclusion from the group and social bonding, because we, we talked about this before. You know, the, it, when we were looking at those um, early English poems, The Seafarer and The Wife's Lament, uh, I think we mentioned the business of um, the exiled person who goes wild, goes feral, uh, and becomes a monster. Mm. And in the in the extra book, he's, this, this the idea of this person is called the Winleas Mon. So this is the person who's who's been thrown out of the mead hall, been thrown out of the small village community, and has to fend for himself, as it were, in the wild wood. Uh, you know, where chances of survival are dramatically reduced, partly because the climate was much colder, and also there's a lot of sort of wild predators and no obvious food source a lot of the time. Um, so there's there's definitely and the whole the whole architecture of um storytelling in um the epics from that period i'm thinking obviously of beowulf is to do with exclusion from the group
1: Mm.
0: if you are outside the group you become a monster and that's really what grendel is grendel is not grendel is a monster but the monster is also it's a sort of cane in man gone wrong yeah, you know, under unbearable circumstances, and there the grooming within the um, the human group is very much it's it's ritual by a different name. It's not necessarily picking nits out, although of course mm. it is because you know making uh, armor, making clothes, making shoes from hide and deer strap hair. It is really a part of is grooming but with prosthetics yeah so I think a lot of the kind of fabricating that goes on in early society it, it is a kind of grooming I, I would yeah. have thought
1: I think so and I think I mean it's interesting if you look at um, the number of things we kind of see, I mean, even in our culture certainly uh, that are permissible for you know in a gen- you know in a gendered way for more permissible for women but like going to nail bars or going to beauticians and it's just it, it's just grooming. <laughs> That's what it is. Yes. You can do your own nail varnish. I do. It's quite easy. <laughs> but it's, you know, there's, it's, and, and it's been one of the things that's been really dramatic to people as a, a thing that's removed. I mean, I'm going to the hairdressers. It's fantastic. Someone plays with their hair all day. You know, it's just great. And it's, and that's, you know, obviously you need a haircut, but it's a, it's a thing that is pleasant, you know. So there are there are these sorts of points of contact and touch. Maybe we should come back to touch actually, because like the meaning of touch and permissible context for touch and our awareness of touch and what it means.
0: Well, uh, pati- actually, oh, particularly now, because in the grooming thing, grooming and touch is really interesting. In, in certain, there's you know, don't touch my hair. There's a there's a there's a there's a, a lot of kind of very various and interesting. Social meanings touch that. Definitely,
1: know. definitely. Okay, well, we'll touch, we'll do touch.
0: We'll, we'll touch on touch. This sort of brings us on to the bit of prose fiction that I've chosen for this podcast, which is called Escapees. And it's actually a chapter in the middle of a novel by. M. John Harrison, who's just recently won the Goldsmiths Prize. Uh, M. John Harrison is a sort of writer of what's sometimes called weird fiction, which is to say it's not really any obvious genre. It's not science fiction, although he started off writing that. It's not fantasy. It's not satire. It's not political allegory. But it has roots in all these things. Uh, He's an absolute one-off, and I think a brilliant writer. And I sort of think of his work as realist fantasy, Mm -hmm. in that he... What he does is he starts you off uh, in a very recognizable setting, often with recognizable types, and then gradually um, those people in the setting are removed, others come in, and the world completely changes. As he says at the beginning of this lovely chapter, you know, once you step into a landscape, landscape changes, it becomes a different landscape. Um, which is, you know, it, it, it's one of the problems of looking at the world through a point of view, isn't it? Having a consciousness mm. that wants you, do you include yourself in the thing you're looking at? He's very interested in all this kind of thing. And this is a story about some climbers. They're all teachers and they go on climbs around Britain, but particularly around Sheffield. And um, they have their little rituals. They have a... Sort of full English breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning, and they sort of there's a lot of banter and chat, which is very wittily caught. And then they go on their climbs and then they drink in the pubs. It's quite difficult to describe what this chapter is about, but it's a completely compelling read. Then, about halfway through, one of the girlfriends, stroke wives, who's sort of attached to one of these teachers, all of whom are all the men are showing off to each other she just pushes back slightly in her chair and she just notices this other boy, this younger boy who's 19, and he's got this sort of sawn-off T-shirt on and he's obviously a bit sort of, you know, rinky-dink-stinky. And he, and he, he notices her and suddenly they're sort of looking each other up and it's not exactly sexual, but it is... But it is the beginning of a relationship. And very, very swiftly in the next paragraph, you, there's an amazing leap in time. Two years later, he's leading a climb with her, you know, up the, um, the peaks. And you realise that they've actually, in that gap between paragraphs and sections, they've actually come together and become a couple. And then they disappear. And all the teachers go off on holiday to various parts of Europe. And into this vacated niche come a series of Variety Club of Great Britain Sunshine Coaches, which for listeners who don't know what those are, Variety Club of the Variety Club of Great Britain was a wonderful charity, I think it still exists, uh, looking after disadvantaged and, and disabled children and taking them out on sort of outward-bound adventures and, and doing events and so on and, and supporting families. And the children um, are parentless and they go out for a day into the Peak District and not all of them come back to the coach. <laughs> and two, it's said so matter-of-factly, I'm going to read this bit in a moment, two or three of them each time just disappear into the moorlands And there they become part of a tribe and they learn how to survive and adapt in this wild environment. And then the the absolute clincher, and I am slightly ruining it for people who haven't read the book, but it's just so marvellously written, it's not really ruining it. Then they're absorbed back into society at the end. And at a sort of future point to which you're not really given access, it's understood that they've become... Part of the normal run of things, they've got jobs and families and they've forgotten their past. But it's really about evolutionary succession Mm. and the stories we tell about what we've done.
1: I thought it was extraordinary. I had to read it a couple of times. I I think I probably say this about most things you say, but I couldn't... The intensity of the sort of recognisable scenes at the start and the sort of zooming into these little moments of, you know, having grown up in middle of nowhere in Lancashire, I couldn't see that tea room, you know. Um, but these men with beards and climbing and stuff. But the um and then this kind of like swerve off into the interior moment for the, the woman who, as you said, just takes a step back and everything's different. And then when uh, it <laughs> swerved off again into the um the variety club children then going wild and then the coach leaving without them and going back to Salford I had to just go back and keep re really if I understood this correctly hang on what what the children and then they all start dying when it gets to winter it's incredible and and then somehow all right that's just the story that they're going on that's the journey that they're on and then they grow up they survive and then they're just back with everybody else it was ex- incredible incredible i couldn't believe it so it's part of a bigger story Is it, it reads yeah. like a short story
0: yeah no it's it's the central chapter in a wonderful novel about a group of climbers in sheffield um in the rest of the book they're all named mm. um so this is kind of an interlude uh who and it takes place in the middle of the 80s so it's in the middle of thatcher's britain they're all sort of they're kind of an untethered group of um Uh, men who have lost their jobs who are bereaved or having some kind of sort of personal crisis and they find some sort of bond they find a social bond through climbing so this is their grooming really Mm. it's it's a shared uh, and, and interesting it's a it's like it's as if it's at the point of intersection that the the paper is talking about because it's a shared activity in which they come to care for each other and it is also at the same time highly competitive and sort of extreme sport
1: yeah
0: so it's both it's not you know in other words you are neither a dominant male nor a participatory female you are sort of both Mm. and in a way this central chapter in which um, both boys and girls disappear into the heather and lose their clothes and really lose their gendered identity and just sort of survive by, by you know, crawling into sheep's carcasses in the winter. You know, this, this story is way ahead of um, The Revenant, where Leonardo DiCaprio does the same thing by about 30 years. Uh, it, it, it's all about that sort of collapsing of categories mm. and, and sharing different kinds of um, skills different kinds of skills that allow you not so much to be dominant as to survive.
1: There was a a really interesting paper um, that came out, uh, again, probably around the same time as the the baboon paper, which was asking this question, because there's a very we've known in social psychology for a few decades that if you want a group of people to get on, and maybe you've got two groups of people, one group of people maybe have a very strong bias against the other group. Maybe you've got real issues of discrimination and stereotypes. If you want to break that down, what you need to do is to have people do something together and for there to be like a recognition, a status to that thing, the authorities agree with it, and you're all working in a fairly flat way, as in you can all contribute to the success of this endeavour and it, for it to be quite clear what the success is. Now, you're probably already realising I'm describing sport there. It's not mm. the only thing that can work that way. Any kind of, you know, commun- there are other things that communities can do. But what this woman did was she was working in... Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. I think she was working in Iraq. Anyway, she was working with communities of Iraqi Christians who have had a very difficult relationship with their na- Muslim neighbours and what she did was she, she did an experimental test of this, and she took Iraqi Christians and put them into experimental football teams. And they were either in a football team with other Iraqi Christians, or they were in a football team with Muslim neighbors. And what she found was that you got an appreciable and measurable and rather rapid reduction in the biases that the Iraqi Christians had against the Muslim neighbors, but only if they played on the same football team. Like they would vote for a, a, an unknown Muslim to, gentleman to win a prize, that kind of thing. It didn't seem to transfer very much out of the football context. Within the football context, it was very, very powerful. But it's exactly what you're describing. Yeah, if you give people yeah. these opportunities, we will very, very quickly get rid of apparently ancient things which might well have their basis in, you know, the Iraqi Christians were not well treated. But, you know, but you can can reshape that really fast in these sorts of common endeavours.
0: I've got three other examples for you. Fleetwood Mac, ABBA and orchestras. You know, what is it about musicians? Absolutely top of their game in the community endeavour to get the album out, you know, and then absolutely cannot keep themselves together once the symphony or the show is over it's mm. just catastrophic sleeping <laughs> <laughs> with each other's wives <laughs> yes. um, you know doing sort of shed loads of class A's I mean it's just yeah so it's but it's quite an interesting thing actually maybe the orchestra is a slightly better more serious example where you know there are all sorts that there's quite quite a complex social dynamic in an orchestra. Um, fam- different families of instruments, different mm. people, um, and, and different hierarchies of seriousness within that, according to the culture, the long-lived culture of the orchestra, and yet a common endeavour which ensures some um, highly desirable outcome. Mm. And it needs managing. It needs, a, it needs a kind of dominant, a chef d'orchestra, although that that person is not necessarily... Again, this is interesting, thinking back to the baboons. It's not necessar- necessarily the most visible person. There's mm. an argument to say it's not really the conductor. It's not the alpha male or, or the alpha yeah. female. It's the person, the administrator behind the scenes who makes sure that everyone gets paid on time. So the, the, the person who really ensures cohesion may not be, as it were, a visible part, the most visible participant in the experiment.
1: Mm. But it's essential, and then you've got essential. that in place... You can sort of create this thing that the, you know, and I don't know, it's a terrible cliche, but it, it does become more than the sum of its parts yeah. when people have this common goal, and a sense of doing it together, and that it's something other people approve of. It's sort of magic in the effect that it has, and I think it's something again. You know, we've there's a lot of interest at the moment in reduct, you know, in trying to quite correctly, address issues around, you know, kind of all signs of discrimination, racism, transphobia, homophobia. But interestingly, and, and often certainly in the university communities, there's a lot of interest in, let's do, let's train people. Like, do you know what? That's not going to do it. What you need to do is get people to do stuff together. Get, yeah. the, and we've already, yeah, I mean, yeah. we're already working yeah, yeah. together. Look, we could try, yeah. you know. And I think that's yeah. something that, again, it's really, it's, this stuff really matters. We are social primates at heart. And we will form groups that discriminate against each other at the drop of the hat. But the opposite is also
0: true. Yeah, exactly. And, it can't be imposed. It's got to be organic. Yeah. And you know, and, and I'm afraid also you have to get people young. Yeah, you know, that they, is also they, the truth.
1: It can really help when they're young. But the, the this, this study with the football study was adults. You know, no, no, it, no, yeah, but there, no. there's power to it. If you people will the desire to have these bonds, I think over if you get all these other things right, the desire to have the bonds will overpower pre-existing prejudices
0: yeah shall we i thought we might just end by since i we've both sort of lavished praise upon the, the pro style of m john harrison maybe maybe read out a tiny bit
1: oh please do it. Was so i'll
0: just just read out that bit in the last section that we've both been talking about with whether whether children leave the coaches don't come back and they go into the wild over the following months. The escaped children learn to live by begging from the long lines of ramblers, which lie permanently across the moors on Sundays, like florists' ribbon. They begin by asking for money, 10 pence, 20 pence, to get home, although they are already forgetting where their homes were. They end up fighting over the discarded sandwich wrappers, which float in the updrafts on the edge of the kinder escarpment. The fat girls soon become lean and muscular, and move with a fiercely agile gait between the piled boulders. While at the slightest sound, the awkward boys make off, farting, with a sudden breathtaking burst of energy to some cave beneath the summit of the rocks. In the mornings, they find themselves looking at a flower or a cloud. They see themselves by accident in the mermaid's pool and pause for a second, puzzled. Their clothes have long ago deteriorated, and fallen away. In winter the death toll is savage. Those that survive learn to cope with the continual wind and rain, the bitter nights and damp blowing snow of the watershed by forming loose unhierarchical groups. They know the insulating power of dead bracken. When there are no more ramblers the girls might run down a sheep Three or four flicks of naked white speed against the rain and the endless black peat rollers, a fire in the night. A girl on her own will not light a fire, but get into the warm carcass and curl up instead to conserve heat. Living along the gritstone edges and soon forgetting any other existence, the children become like lemurs, like ghosts. In some way, the rocks and the climbs come to belong to them they allow us to see only dream rocks, dream climbs. This is what Sheffield climbers believe. There we are. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Well, I think, we, I think that seems like a natural conclusion.
1: I think it does. Thank you very much. Thank and you
0: for your, the delight of your social bond. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, one last thing, just quickly. What is the difference between a social bond and social connectedness in that piece? So the bond is the existence of a bond okay so,
1: um, you know, probably for us you'd describe it as someone you know, yeah, you know, Oh, yes I've met him i, I and you there's an absolute cut off between people that you would say hello to, people you might go, oh, hi see you, but then people that you don't okay, there's so there, there's that there's there's some kind of connection there which is respected by acknowledging it, and then the strength of that connection is how close are you to that person, so um, everybody has. Uh, well, you know, if one to a better phrase, a sort of hierarchy: the people that you're close to, and then the people that you know that are acquaintances, but they are not a close friend. Um, and there, probably the difference would probably be if you were walking down the street and you saw someone that you would expect to stop and talk to you, not just say hello, but then they didn't. You might think, "Oh, what have I done wrong?" Why, okay, why...
0: so it's so it's the difference between an example of a, and the, and the phenomenon and yeah, its the, complications.
1: The, te- the the closeness of that. So, I mean, it's Robin Dunbar um, estimates that human groups of sort of acquaintances tend to be on the order of around 100 people. And then within that, you have... Um, I think he's actually put quite, quite a precise number on this. Um, I think you can have 11 close friends. Yeah. Um, and that's the people that you... Would feel a much closer link to, and whom you would sort of spend some time making sure that you keep in touch with. Mm.
0: And you can't. I think he says also, doesn't he, that you can't know more than one hundred and fifty. That's the absolute kind it of starts limit. to break off exactly. And I mean, I mean
1: yeah. you can yeah. sort of imagine where you might have like a sense of familiarity with more people than that, but that wouldn't be enough for it to be an acquaintance. Yeah. That sort of saying saying hello.
0: Yeah.
1: The the kind of that that that's that's a saying hello or not that that's the marker that's the difference if they're on your hello side of things then they're part of your network
0: it's interesting that that's in the in the, in the mike harrison piece as well though isn't it that that phrase loose higher unhierarchical bonds between yeah. these quite large communities of children have gone feral yeah and and the kind of the more of them there are the kind of less cohesive it yeah. becomes. we've been the new romantics and i'm will eaves i'm sophie scott And see you next time. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you so much.